Hello, and welcome to Bird of the Week. It's a podcast about birds, released on a non-weekly basis. Episode 6, The Tristane Albatross. Up until now, we've been looking at birds in the broad, but today we're going to zoom in and look at one in particular, the Tristane Albatross. But before we do that, we better start with the big picture and just try to work out what exactly is an albatross. Is it just a really big seagull? And why don't you want one around your neck? Do they make ugly pendants? Well, their potential as a jury item aside, albatrosses are not related to seagulls at all. Seagulls, and some pretentious sticklers will tell you there's no such thing as a seagull, and technically, they're right. There is no bird called a seagull, and the family they belong to are known simply as gulls. But I don't have time for those pedants in there. Well, technically, there's no such thing as a seagull. I'm calling them seagulls, and if anyone doesn't like it, they can shove it right up there. Seagulls belong to the family Laridae in the order, perfect pronunciation here, Charadriformes whereas albatross belong to the family Diomididae in the order Procelliformes. They're named for the Greek hero Diomedes, whose companions were turned into birds at the end of the Trojan War. That's just a fun little aside. What it means, though, is that despite their shared maritime tendencies, albatross and seagulls aren't related at all. When we start to dig into how these birds live, it becomes increasingly apparent. Seagulls are coastal birds. They hang out on beaches and other small bodies of water. While they may sally forth over the waves, they rarely leave sight of land. Meanwhile, albatrosses rarely come in sight of land, spending almost all their lives aloft out on the open ocean, only returning to breed. They are large, robust birds, some of the biggest flighted birds getting around, with the wandering albatross holding the record for the biggest wingspan of any bird getting to nearly three and a half metres tip to tip. And these are special wings. With them, the albatross is one of the most efficient moving creatures on Earth. Uh, Above Earth? Above water? Don't worry about it, they just move very efficiently. In other words, it takes little energy for them to travel vast distances. And they do this by soaring. Have you ever looked at the wings of a glider? They're very long and slender compared to the body of the craft. Well, this is exactly how an albatross's wings are designed. In flight, they use a combination of dynamic gliding and slope gliding, which are rather technical aeronautical things. The long and the short of it is that they use different wing currents to take them high and then glide back down. They have special tubes in their nose that can measure airspeed, and using this information they find the right wind and the right angles of attack to stay airborne and travel hundreds of kilometres each day without hardly any need to flap their wings. In fact, they have special tendons in their arms that lock their wings in place while soaring, so they can keep their wings open without using any muscles, and this lets them ride the wind without ever getting tired. Let me tell you, I just flew in from New York and boy are my arms tired! said no albatross ever. Also because they don't live in the North Atlantic? Research has shown that while soaring, an albatross uses about as much energy as it does while sitting on its butt. They're like little perpetual motion machines. It's like they get too much work done with too little energy. In this house we obey the laws of thermodynamics. The only time they lose energy while in flight 
is when they make turns, take off, land, or catch their food. Using this highly efficient form of locomotion, a wandering albatross can travel some 120,000 kilometers a year. That's like traveling to the moon, if you only got a third of the way there. Still impressive. Now, you may sometimes see a dumb meme on the internet saying these birds stay aloft for years on end. And while they do stay at sea for years at a time, they still land on the ocean to rest, so don't believe everything you hear on the internet. Uh, unless it's me saying it. You can always trust me. To stay at sea for so long, they have developed another rather neat attribute. I'm sure you've heard the old expression, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. If you or I drank seawater, a process called osmosis would actually suck water out of our cells, drying us from the inside as physics attempted to equalize the salinity level between the water in our body and the water we ingested. Now, if you don't want to worry about all that science guff, I'll give you the summarized version. If you drink salt water, you'll die of dehydration, so don't do it. That is, unless you're an albatross and have a salt gland. For them, it's water, water everywhere, so let's all have a drink. Is that two Simpsons quotes in one episode? I am on fire today! When an albatross drinks salt water, it enters their bloodstream and goes straight to a gland above their nose where it gets filtered through membranes. The salt is removed, and the fresh water then circulates through the rest of their body. They then excrete a 95% saline solution through their nose, expelling the salt from their body. Yeah, it's a pretty neat trick. It's a form of natural reverse osmosis, which isn't dissimilar to how desalination plants work. Now, as much as they thrive on salt water, these birds aren't fish. So every now and again, they have to return to land, usually to breed. They favor small, isolated islands, which have at least historically, being devoid of mammalian predators. They have strong homing senses and will almost always choose to nest on the island where they were born. This sense is so strong that a study of Laysan albatross found that the average distance between where a bird was born and where it would later choose to make its own nest was just 22 meters. These birds really imprint on the place where they hatch. Albatross are quite long-lived, on average, they can make it 40 years, with the oldest on record, a bird named Wisdom, clocking in at over 70. They also tend to mate for life, uh, pending any untimely demises, and they pick their mates by doing elaborate dances. Some species engage in duels, slapping their bills back and forth against each other like two children playing patty cake. Others clatter their bills like Spanish castanets, and yet others will hold open their massive wings, tip their head skyward and let out a scream, not unlike a velociraptor. Roll the audio! Mmm, <laughs> blood curdling. I have it on good authority that it is utterly irresistible to other albatross. The pair take turns incubating the egg and going on fishing trips. While one sits, the other can travel up to 5,000 kilometers over two weeks to gather up food to help feed the chick. Now, you may be wondering how albatross find food hiding underwater on a gray, featureless landscape, uh, rather, seascape. Well, they have an amazing sense of smell and can hone in on a pungent treat from over 20 kilometers away. It makes them expert foragers. That is, if you can forage on water? When the mating season is done and the chicks are fledged, the birds return to their solitary life, riding the air currents above the waves. But every year, they will return to the same nesting site 
to meet back up with the same partner. It's like that play, Same Time Next Year by Bernard Slade. Anyone seen that play? Same Time Next Year? About two people having an affair where they meet once a year at the same hotel? They made it into a movie with Alan Alda? Anyone? Just me? Okay. There are 22 species of albatross, and I'm sorry to say that every one of them is listed as either threatened, endangered, or vulnerable. The modern world has not been kind to our wide-winged friends. When they eat ocean plastic, it leads to brutal and painful starvation. Many get snagged and die on commercial long-line fishing trawlers. Invasive predators have destroyed their nests and eat their chicks. And during the height of the feather trade, many were almost hunted to extinction. The feather trade was a 19th century European obsession to find the fanciest bird plumes to turn them into the fanciest ladies' hats. Uh, having a pile of feathers on your head was quite the fashion statement. Probably one of the most frivolous reasons we've ever come up with for butchering birds. We'll have more to say on that in a future episode. The fashion trend devastated one bird in particular. The short-tailed albatross was hunted on an almost industrial level, with some sources from the 1930s reporting that up to 10 million birds were killed in a single year for hat feathers. A ban was placed on their hunting, but in 1949, when a research team arrived at their last known nesting site, they were unable to find any, and the bird was declared extinct. However, it takes albatrosses several years to reach sexual maturity, and until they do, they stay out at sea. It turned out there was a small handful of birds still growing on the open ocean that hadn't been killed. Five years after they were declared extinct, 50 of them miraculously returned, seemingly from the dead, and since then, a tremendous amount of work has gone into ensuring their ongoing survival. Today, they're around 3,000, so we haven't exactly gotten back to that 10 million figure, but they're hanging in there. Okay, so I think we've figured out what an albatross is, which means we're ready to start the episode proper. Cue the opening theme! Nah, I'm just kidding. We're going to jump right into it after a word from this week's sponsor. Out in the country, life is simple. The rain falls, the sun shines, the grass grows, and the cows eat it. But do you ever have trouble with cows fermenting their feed? Mighty inconvenient when a cow's microbial gut biome goes on the fritz. After all, that grass ain't gonna ferment itself, as my pappy always used to say. In times like that, I always turn to the Watson. To Watson, South America's avian answer to cattle. This here bird can ferment greens like it ain't nobody's business. They can munch, they can chump, and they stink to high heaven. But then, that's the price you pay for the finest fermentation this side of the Amazonian River. Sure, their babies have claws like dinosaurs, but when it comes to turning greens to guano, you can always rely on the Watson. At least you can out here, in the country, where life is simple. And now, back to the show. Now, I want you to join me on a little trip to a place I like to call Goff Island. Well, I guess everyone calls it that, not just me. It is its name, after all. This is a tiny spit of land in the middle of the southern Atlantic Ocean. It's cold, it's grey, it's rainy, it's windy. Can I get some ambient wind in here? There we go. It was first discovered by the Portuguese in 1505 and accurately plotted on Atlantic maps. 
Then, in 1732, an English sailor, one Charles Gough, rediscovered it, air quotes there, rediscovered it, erroneously believing that he was 400 miles to the east. Even though his mistake was soon discovered, what with the English being the English, they decided that the island would do very well as part of their empire. I mean, it was a dreary, grey, barren island, so it probably felt just like home. They claimed it, named it, and to this day it is still under their jurisdiction, being administered out of St. Helena, another tiny island in the Atlantic, most famous as the place where Napoleon was exiled and died. Gough Island has never had a permanent population, and for hundreds of years the only people that ever stopped in were a couple of fur traders and bird trappers. Let's make a little note of that fact for later. Today, it is a UNESCO World Heritage Site, and the only people on the island are a team of six who staff a weather station, along with the odd researcher and conservationist who pop in from time to time to check that the wildlife is still there. The island was formed by volcanic activity, and features a 900 meter high peak, which last erupted over 2,000 years ago and is now considered extinct. As unappealing as a windswept spit of land in the middle of the ocean might be for us people, for birds it is a veritable paradise. Gough Island hosts a range of avian life, some of which is endemic to the island. Endemic meaning they don't live anywhere else. There's much we could say about these birds, but there's one in particular that draws our attention today, and that is the Tristane albatross. Ironically, it's named after a different island, Tristane de Cunha, another British territory some 400 kilometers to the northwest. Why it's called the Tristane albatross and not the Gough albatross, I don't know, because it nests almost exclusively on Gough Island. I guess we can't make things too simple. Their closest relative is the wandering albatross, so these are big boys. They don't get quite as big as a wanderer, but with a wingspan of over 3 meters, I think they're big enough. Wanderers also tend to be white, while the Tristane is a darker color. But in the main, the Tristane albatross acts like most other albatross. They spend most of their time at sea, fishing, and return to land once every two or so years to mate. Now, life as an albatross chick on Gough Island is a pretty hard slog. From hatching to fledging, it takes about nine months. It's probably why they only breed once every two years. It just seems like a lot of work. And what with the gales, the gales, I said, the ga gale, can, can we cut the wind? <clears throat> what with gale-forced winds whipping over the island and three meters of rain a year, it probably isn't a surprise that not every chick makes it. But in recent years, the Tristan albatross has had to contend with a far more fearsome adversary. The most savage and unforgiving of predators, the house mouse. Now, I know what you're thinking. Come on, Nate, give me a break. A mouse couldn't hurt a fly. To which I say, well, I guess we've finally found a bird that's weaker than a fly. But I take your point, so let's back it up. Historically, Gough Island was mammal-free, but I asked you to make note of those fur traders and bird trappers that used to stop by in the 1800s. Turns out those boats had a few rodent stowaways that ended up as castaways. For a long time, a couple of mice on the island didn't make all that much difference. Because, as we all know, a mouse couldn't hurt a fly. On top of which, each year, the harsh winter would knock out most of the mouse population, so their numbers were kept in check. Ah, you might have noticed a key word in that sentence. Knocked out most of the population, not all. Turns out evolution is a fickle mistress, and over the generations, those mice that could survive the winter 
kept having children which got progressively bigger and stronger. Today, those mice are butch, about twice the size of a normal mouse, and the winter doesn't really phase them anymore. Well, it does phase them in one way. You see, there isn't a lot of food on the island over the winter, and these mice get hungry. But there are birds. Here's how it goes down, and apologies to those of you who are squeamish. Even though a mouse is just a mouse, an albatross chick sitting on the ground can't really defend itself. When night falls, the mice come out of their hidey holes, climb onto the chicks, and start gnawing at them. At first, the chicks will naturally knock them away, but the mice are persistent and they will keep at it, and keep at it, and keep at it, and keep at it, until the chick becomes exhausted and no longer has the energy to defend itself. Over several nights, the mice will return and gradually open a wound until they can break into the bird's internal cavity and eat them from the inside out. It's a slow, gruesome death. Year on year, the problem has gotten worse. Until now, almost no chicks make it to adulthood. And they're not the only birds on the island suffering. Albatrosses, petrels, terns, finches, buntings, all of them are on the mouse menu. That's two million chicks, each year dead. And it was only this year that the first reports came back that the mice are now bolshy enough to attack and kill the parents. It's predicted that if nothing is done, the Tristane albatross along with some other endemic birds like the Atlantic petrel and the goth finch, will be extinct within 20 years. I get it, guys. It's a massive downer, especially when I try so hard to keep this show bouncy. But here's the good news. Something is being done. The Royal Society for the Protection of Birds has launched one of the most ambitious restoration campaigns ever undertaken. The plan is pretty simple. Drop poison bait on the island, but like, a shit ton of bait. It's a pest control strategy that has worked on other islands. The challenge with Goth is its remoteness, and as already mentioned, its less than clement weather conditions. One of the good parts of the plan, though, is because there are no other mammals on the island, they don't have to worry about any collateral deaths from the poison. The mice are the only things that will take the bait. The plan was due to kick off last year, but then COVID happened. 2021, though, is the year Operation Eradicate Mice gets back on track. But of course, these things don't come cheap, and the fine folks at RSPB are always in need of additional funds. So, if you've got a spare penny or two to help out a bird in need, why not swing past their website, goffisland.com, and check out what they're doing. That's goffisland, G-O-U-G-H-I-S-L-A-N-D, all one word. The birds will thank you, and hopefully we can make sure there will always be a place for them in our world. So, that ep got a bit rough, but there was a little glimmer there at the end. You see, islands tend to be really important hotspots of biodiversity on our planet. It's why it's important we protect them. Animals that find their way there can evolve in unique and closed-off habitats and have developed into some of the strangest and most bizarre creatures on Earth. Creatures that are found nowhere else but on their tiny island homes. And this is doubly true for birds. 
birds have a habit of finding their way onto islands. Being able to fly certainly helps them there. So next week, we're going to take a little tour of the world's islands and meet the strange birds that call these little habitats home. I hope to see you all then. Here's one bird, however often I release this podcast not enough for you, and I've got some good news. If you'd like a bird to arrive in your inbox every week, simply send an email to weekly.bird at outlook.com and I'll add you to the Bird of the Week mailing list. No ads, no subscriber fees, just beautiful birds flying at you each and every week. Until then, this has been Bird of the Week. Can I get some ambient wind in here?